0: Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, founder of Bridge the Difference LLC and author of Making Virtual Work, Dr. Betty Johnson. What you drink. Okay, guys, we, we've we've got another incredible conversation all queued up for you. This this is going to be one uh that is going to remind you of what you have always understood leadership to be about, and then cause you to evaluate some of those core concepts. I, I just I just know because I've already had a couple of conversations with this lady, and she just really caused me to reflect on those foundational elements that I have always thought about leadership. And so I I had to shut down my conversation with her. And uh, even today, you know, be quiet. we got to save this for the conversation because I need my listeners to hear what we talk about. So, Dr. Betty Johnson, welcome to Whiskey Jazz and Leadership. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Galen. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, we've already had some pretty, pretty high, I call them highbrow conversations where we're really getting into some, like I said, core elements of leadership. And you, you caused me to question and reevaluate a few things. So uh, I, I've got, I've got more questions for you. And my well, audience, I'm
1: curious. I'm curious about that too. I hope you'll talk about that.
0: Yeah. And my audience knows, that this conversation can't really get off on the right foot until I ask. So what you drinking?
1: On this special occasion, Gatelyn, I am cracking open right now an IPA. This is a Southern Tier Brewing Company live session IPA just for you. And I'm pouring it into not a whiskey glass, but I'm pouring it into a wine glass there was a gift from a friend when I completed my PhD. And for those of you who've done this, you know, it is a haul. It takes everything you've got. You Sometimes you think, I don't have enough to get this thing done. So my friend Dean gave me this set of glasses, and they're etched with this, if you can imagine it. P-H-D, right? So it's a P, H with a period, and then the big capital D, but also etched in this after the P-H-D are these letters, U-C-K-I-N. <laughs> now, what does that say? I hope you're putting the language together. I don't really want to say it on air unless you force me to. Go for
0: it, go for it, Abby. so <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. All right, I get it, I get it, I get it.
1: <laughs> so you have to bleep that out, Galen, when you do your-
0: Oh, uh, We'll fix that, we'll fix that. The audience will never, ever hear that. They will never, ever hear that. Well, hey, you know, I- I'll tell you, I give a lot of thought into the whiskeys that I drink while we have interviews with amazing people. So for this one, because of the foundational conversation that you and I had uh, just a short time ago, uh, for this, I decided that I would drink a 12-year-old Old Medley, which is a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey uh, this is, uh, you know, eighty six point eight proof. So this is not as strong as I usually drink, but this is just a really good old fashioned whiskey. Uh, I mean, and the name is Old Medley, so it just—it's just a familiar song because that just reminds me of our conversation, and it really gets me geared up for. Uh, this continuation that, we, I, that I know we're going to have. So I'm going to go ahead and crack open my old medley.
1: It sounds like something I really wish I was drinking. Mm, beautiful color.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. I remember. See, now, Su- one of my guests, Susan Lidner, used to always make fun of me when I'd say, yeah, yes, yes, yes. But that's what whiskey does for me. So I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna enjoy this old medley. I, I would love for you to share a little bit about your background. Just, uh, just a bit about this work that you've done uh, because you, you your PhD focus was around this space that we're all living through. And it was incredibly timely. And it's uh, really led to this book that you have out called Making Virtual Work. Uh, So just tell a little bit about your background, how you got here, so that we can get into this conversation.
1: One of the things I really like to do, Galen, whenever I'm talking about myself, is remember where I came from. You know, remember where I came from as a little girl that set things in motion. What made me be that person that was willing to go the absolute limit? of endurance to get this PhD and what made me that person that was willing to go out on a limb and be an entrepreneur and not have a regular paycheck and see what happens. So right, coincidentally, right before we got online, I went to YouTube. I was looking for something and then up popped this YouTube of my aunt, Betty Johnson. I'm her namesake. My aunt and my dad's family were gospel singers back during the depression. They traveled around the country, kind of like the, Gar- the Carter family, or if you've seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That was their life. My uncle Kenneth, uh, my dad's brother, wrote a book called We Sang for Our Supper, because they did, because they would literally go to a tent revival and hope they would sing and some- hope someone would invite them home for dinner. And As I was watching my Aunt Betty perform on the Ed Sullivan Show. And then I saw her perform on the Jonathan Winter Show. You know, if you go back that far and seeing these top 10 singles that she had, but also singing gospel music to to crowds at the Grand Ole Opry, you know, for Mm -hmm. Easter Sunday. It just reminded me that you have to have a vision of more than what you know in order to let go of what you have and reach out. Reach out for that branch that you can grasp, even though you feel like fault, you're falling. What you're really doing is flying like a trapeze artist. So I just want to pay um, today that homage to my aunt, Betty, who went out on a limb at age 18, moved to New York City all by herself Mm. and made a star out of herself. Thank you to her for setting that example. So your real question though is about what <laughs> about leadership, right? Maybe that's a leadership story too, uh, because leaders, we watch and, and we model what we see. And I would say that that's why we have a lot of problems right now, because there's been a lot of modeling of ineffective command control, my way or the highway, I don't care what you think, just do what I want kind of leadership. Hmm. And that model is what I call the way of the dinosaur. It is rapidly going to lead to extinction, either of your career or of your firm.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll tell you that that's one of the things that's one of the areas that I have often been both fascinated by and then also frustrated by those leaders who are able to lead in a way that's different than what they've seen, because to your point, it's much easier to try to emulate what you've seen than it is to come up with your and chart your own way. But when all you've seen is command and control, uh, all the uh, uh, phrases that you just shared, we've we've all experienced that. You know, I'm going to try to cut some of those leaders some some slack. Very often they would lead that way because it's expedient, it's easier, and if you're lucky, you get what you ask for. But it's just easier to bark the orders, and so that's what newer leaders have seen. And so now they say, well, now it's my chance to bark some orders. You know, as I like to say, with seniority comes some protection against insubordination. So you might get much of what you ask for, but boy, you won't have any staying power. And you certainly won't get what I call pleasant surprises. There's, There's no one gonna be looking around corners trying to give you some things that you didn't ask for if you use command and control. So what do you say to those, to those leaders who all they've seen is command and control leadership? And now, you know, not only is Galen here trying to say there's a better way, but now he's bringing a PhD to come say there's a better way. What do you say to those folks who keep hearing that it's a better way, but they haven't seen they haven't seen a better way in their own careers?
1: Well, I mean, maybe this is sadistic, okay, but I think first there has to be pain. In order for there to be change, things have to be not working the way that they used to work. Okay, so, that, so otherwise, why change? Keep doing what you're doing if, if it's making you successful. So it's more about connecting that pain that you're in to the way out. I mean, that's why the, that's why the name of my firm is Bridging the Difference. It's how do you get from where you are to where you really want to be? And how do you do that? Not by yourself, but with your people. So this lone ranger, the heroic leader, the person who's got it all figured out. And all I've got is my little sidekick over here, Tonto, who's going to do whatever I tell him. That is over. And the big quit or the great resignation or the big reshuffle or whatever you want to call it is the data that leaders are now dealing with. They can't get the talent in the jobs that they need and get that talent to stay. The talent will come if they're lucky. Then the talent will say, this place is not a great place to work. There's a lot of drama going on here. There's a lot of toxicity. People are barking orders. It's getting us into binds. They don't understand why what they're saying. I'm out. I can go get another job making more money. Why should I stay here putting up with this mess? So that's why I call it the way of the dinosaur, because it is becoming uh, the path of extinction. Your firm can't keep talent if that's how you lead. There's a lot of stuff in the news this week. A lot of do it this way, because this is how it's always worked in the past. And, you know, meanwhile, you're retired, dude. So like, how do you know what works now as technology advances? How about ask your people what works mm. instead of just spouting off your own experience from 30 years ago? Ask people what works. This is why I love research because you can ask people and they will tell you their truth. And your truth might be different from my truth, might be different from this other person's truth. But if we can hold all of those truths, if we can hold them simultaneously and get that meta perspective of the bigger story that captures these multiple realities that people have, okay, that's where leadership happens. It happens at that meta view level where you are strategic in your responses. You are empathetic in what you require of people. You're ready to move the re- remove the hurdles so that they can get more done, so that they can have better relationships, so that they will be your sticky people, mm-hmm. loyal to you. And even if they leave what I love, I've been having a lot of conversations with leaders recently about, yeah, I do that and I bring them in. That's how I am, Betty. I have great relationships with these people that work for me. And then because we trained them so well, they go work for Amazon, increase their pay by a third overnight. And so I'm losing people to these employers that are willing to pay a lot of money. What I am now starting to see just in the last few weeks are people who have made those jumps to some of those companies that we know will pay you know, crazy money for people. They're coming back. As one person said on a LinkedIn post, welcome back home.
0: Wow. I can relate to that, both from a philosophical standpoint, but also from a very uh, tangible, tactical uh, standpoint as well. Uh, I, uh, many people know a lot about my story, and you know, thirty years in corporate America, working for some of the biggest brands on the planet. But then I uh, working with my clients were primarily restaurateurs, so I thought, boy, this restaurant restaurant stuff seems easy. Let, let me go ahead and open up a a restaurant, and you know while I'm in corporate America, and because I don't want to spend a whole lot of time, I'll, I'll open up a franchise because they say that the franchise is easy, and and uh, boy, that brochure said all I need to do is plunk some money down, and um, my money will grow overnight by at least ten percent. And so I did that, and I opened up a a, a frozen yogurt shop, you know, nothing too sophisticated. And then I hired a bunch of people under the age of 19 to manage my business operationally because this is a yogurt shop. This is really easy. And I experienced that very thing that you just described. And I, I got really, really tactical and tangible with those concepts. I knew that for every employee that I brought in, it was going to cost me $300 to train them. I, I knew that. And if I didn't keep them for at least a month, that money was gone. And although I was not competing with Walmart and with Target and with Bath & Beyond, because I sell yogurt, oh my gosh, if they leave me and they, they're looking for more money, those. Folks are paying twice what I'm paying. So I am competing against them. And so it really did bring to the forefront everything that you're talking about philosophically. Because, you know, it's just easy to say, yeah, I agree with that author. I agree with that author. Boy, she got her PhD. I can see why, because she's got the philosophy right. But this has very, very tactical, tangible, everyday implications you know we could talk about a yogurt shop but you know add a comma and a few more zeros and now we're talking about amazon we're talking about walmart we're talking about target we're talking about mcdonald's corporation because those concepts don't change so talk to me a little bit about in you know with some of the work that you've done uh what does it take for People to understand uh the work that goes into making sure that employees don't just get the training that they need, that they don't just get the acknowledgement that they need. That's kind of baseline, but they really need to feel like there's a culture where they feel like they can they can grow, that they can build, that they can learn something from. What does it take for organizations to understand and appreciate that? Do you believe?
1: So I have a biased perspective on this topic. Not everybody will agree with me on this. And that's okay. You know, it's really good to have places of disagreement because that's, if you can combine those, it's kind of like a prism, right? So if the prism didn't have multiple facets, it would never have that flash of brilliance at the center. So just saying, there might be some listeners who don't agree with what I have to say. I think training is, unless it's compliance, we have to know how to comply with regulators and so forth. And we have to know, for example, uh, to get certifications like a PMP. I mean, there's training in process. There's training in method. There's training in uh, that happens where you do repetitive practices and you learn something new. But what happens far too often is we go train our people, our staff, and then we still show up as really lousy leaders. So training makes no difference when the leadership is lousy. All training does is improve the technical functioning of a person, right? They can maybe they can get more done, maybe they can uh, do something more wisely the most importantly lessons that we learn in work we learn from the people we report to Mm. that's my opinion do you disagree
0: oh no i i think i think you're absolutely dead on uh and i have often said um that it really doesn't matter what i say as the owner of the business because at some point i'm going to leave and you're going to be left with that shift leader And that shift leader is going to really demonstrate what the real truth is of how the business runs. Because to your point, it really doesn't matter what the rules or what the quote unquote right way to do things are. They're gonna show you the way things are done. And so there has to be this buy-in. There has to be this understanding, this uh, this shared purpose of what we're here to do, whatever your organization is. Because if there's no shared purpose, then you you really don't have the business that you think you have. You really don't have the vision that you think you have. Uh, I, I've heard it said, and this was, this must've been 30 years ago. Oh my God, I'm dating myself. The, the real measure of leadership is how far into the organization can people recite the true values of what the organization is there to do. And if 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 the values can only be recited correctly at the senior-most levels of the organization, but the person at the entry-level position doesn't know what you're there to do, then you really don't have values. You, you have posters on a wall, you have some things written down, but there's no heartbeat to the organization. So, what's your what's your take on that? That 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 the true values of the organization is measured by how far down into the organization people can tell you what it is that we're all trying to do.
1: Well, two things come to mind. The first is a saying that I adopted when I worked for a change management consulting firm before I launched my own firm, and this is the saying: culture eats strategy for lunch. And so you might have this strategy that includes your mission, your vision, your values. But at the ground level, that frontline leader, if that frontline leader is lousy, it doesn't matter whether I can recite the company values or know what the mission and vision is, because you know what? This place stinks. It smells so bad, I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> So what I think about when you said the, the number one job of leadership, I once again thought of that metaphor, the prism, because not discounting what you're saying, that is really important. And without that facet, you will not have organizational brilliance. Another facet, and I state this in my book, making virtual work: the true measure of you as a leader, it's not how smart you are, it's not how capable you are, and how you can get things done. Your true value as a leader is this. How happy are your people working for you? Oh, wow. Because if they're not happy working for you, the rest of it doesn't matter. They're not going to give you their best. They're not going to stick with you when times get tough. They're not going to be your ally when the team starts getting super dysfunctional. They're going to go off and create drama over here with these other people. But if they are happy working for you as a leader, that loyalty, that affinity, that sense of belonging, this is what we're talking about with inclusion. Mm. So you know you've got the recipe right. If they're happy working for you, whatever that recipe is, you got it right for that person. So I maintain, especially in this virtual world where so many managers don't know how to show up. They're used to management by walking around. They want to know what their people are doing. They make assumptions that, oh, because, because I tried to IM you and you didn't answer in 30 minutes, you must be slacking off, you know, taking a nap. There are all these really negative assumptions about people. And I'm, I'm, don't send me down that rabbit hole. I can go there super fast. But <laughs> I think if you're the kind of manager or leader that your people are happy working for you, then you're not making those kinds of assumptions, are you? What you're assuming is they're giving you their best every day. Because when you assume that, you're honoring their dignity. And if you don't honor their dignity, guess what? Not happy, Mm. insulted, feeling misjudged, and they will leave. And all of that investment you made in training them and all those degrees that they have and that skill set they have as an engineer, whatever their role is, gone. Because they weren't happy working for you. And they weren't happy working for you, not because of them, because of you. Uh-huh. So the ownership comes back to you as a leader. What are you doing to create the kinds of conditions where your employer employees will say, you know what? Sometimes this place around here is a holy mess. I mean, I've got more work to do. I'm working longer hours. They need to be paying me more for all this. But at the end of the day, Betty's got my back at the end of the day, if I need something, I can call Betty up and she'll try to help me figure out how to get it. Why am I going to go to work for somebody else where chances are I'm not going to have that kind of person that will have my back?
0: Wow. that I mean, that's it, right? I mean, that should really be the aspiration of leadership. And it's so easy to get caught up in the spreadsheets. It's, it's so easy to get caught up in the calculations and the metrics and the measures. And I told a story a couple of episodes ago where one of my mentors who passed away a couple of years ago used to make a point of grilling new managers by asking, uh, do you know what business you're in? And very often we would say, well, yes, Stan, uh, we're in the beverage business. Because we work for the Coca Cola company, he would say, "Well, no, you're—that's not the business you're in. Do you know what business you're in?" Uh, well, you know, of course, I'm in the business of making sure that I deliver the business plan that I've committed to you and to the rest of the beverage uh, beverage category within this company. And he would say, "No, that's not the business that you're in." And so finally, he would say, "Galen, you are in the business." of creating the environment for your team to deliver the business results, for your team to deliver the commitment to the organization. If you don't create that environment and they can't deliver the results, then yeah, that's your responsibility. And I I just continue to think as I listen to you that even today, many leaders don't know the business that they're in.
1: Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I will also say that I am my my life is really blessed with clients who do get it. Mm. So working with those leaders is what gives me the hope, you know, the, the hope to carry on. It is out there. There are people who get it. And and maybe they are not the CEO, but they report to the CEO. They have the CEO's ear. Because even the managing up aspect of these roles, it really requires some of the same mindset. My job is to help you get your job done. That's my job. Yeah. And if you're my CEO, my job is to help you get the kind of earnings on this company that you want, build the kind of leadership that you're looking for, help you see where the potholes are, where the, where the frictions and rubs are in this organization so that you can decide what to do about it. My job is to help you be successful. You know, there are a lot of people at the individual contributor role who get this, they do. They talk to me about it. Like, you know, I just like be. I don't want to be. I don't want the spotlight. I just want to help them shine. And I think, well, then you need to be moving on up. Yeah. Because because that is what leadership is.
0: Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review, or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives.